Well, on what is probably the biggest Friday of the year that we remember, it is the Speaking For Him podcast with you with another edition. I'm Adam McNutt alongside the host of the program, Mr. Andrew Gommerson. Yes, indeed. It is Good Friday, and it really is an important Friday around here because um, it's probably the biggest reason that Speaking For Him exists is because we serve Jesus Christ, who is... uh, our Savior, and he didn't just die on the cross and stay in the grave. He died and rose again. And, you know, Adam, I don't know how many Good Fridays it's been. I think this is our fourth or fifth. And so every um, year it becomes a new challenge to come up with a way to share uh, this important story in a fresh way. And I'm very excited about what we have to share uh, today. But first of all, Adam, do you have any thoughts about Good Friday? Uh, I think it's just that. Be thinking about it today. I, I know in uh, today's society and, and schedules it can be kind of crazy and life gets busy and you can just kind of pass right through it. But be reminded that today, I mean, it was it was a plot twist. I know that doesn't sound very theologically uh, wise, but it really was. I mean, to think of what Jesus did for us and how what he did on the Good Friday continues to do for us today. It's amazing. Well... Today, I would like you to take a seat, to close your eyes, and to join uh, the Apostle John on the shores of Galilee. Here is John. My name is John. You probably knew my father, Zebedee. Most people in the region did. He had a thriving business in the fishing trade. My father and his father before him were exceptionally skilled in the ways of the sea. As a result, people came from miles around to buy his fish. Needless to say, my older brother James and I grew up with everything two boys could ever need, and a great deal beside. My mother, Salome, always wanted more children, but it was not meant to be. Year after year, my mother prayed and hoped that she would once again feel the stirrings of new life within her womb. Many nights I fell asleep listening as she covered her pillow with tears. It was difficult to watch my dear mother go through this struggle, After all, I wanted to be a big brother as well. Because there were only two of us, James and I were doted on quite a bit. Perhaps that explains, at least in part, why we later had the gall to ask Jesus if we could sit on his right and on his left in his future kingdom. I'm still ashamed of this. How could I have been so self-centered? But I'm getting ahead of myself. James and I were very excited to learn the family business. We wanted to continue his legacy, and I won't lie, we talked of building on his wealth as well. At some point, however, despite the many advantages we had growing up, we began to feel the emptiness of the pursuit of earthly things. My friend Andrew and I started following John the Baptist, and when he pointed out that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, we had a lot to think about. We spent the rest of the day and the night that followed with Jesus, and my mind was racing so much that I didn't sleep a wink. I actually spent most of the next day telling James about my experience. A few days later, we were hard at work on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, mending our nets. Next to cleaning the fish, this was my least favorite part of my trade. It's not easy work, but you can't expect to make a worthwhile catch with broken nets. Anyway, as we were busy working, something prompted me to look up, and standing before me was Jesus himself. He had a twinkle in his eye. I think it was because he knew that he was the cause of those broken nets. You see, we had been out fishing all night a few nights previous and hadn't caught a thing. 
The next morning Jesus walked by and said, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. I will admit that our initial thought was that he was crazy. He was not a fisherman. Why was he telling us what to do? Yet if you spend any amount of time with Jesus, you know that he speaks with authority in everything he says. We did as he said, and caught so many fish that our nets burst with the weight of the catch. Now as he stood before me and simply said, Follow me. James and I both got up and left our father with the nets. We never looked back. Some people ask us if it was really that simple, and all we can do is answer yes. We were restless, and something in us told us that Jesus could help us with that in a way that no one else could. My father was nearing retirement. He expected to pass the business down to us, but instead the miraculous catch of fish gave him income while he sought a buyer. I know he was puzzled by our decision, but he must have sensed the restlessness we felt because he never questioned us about it. I saw him only a few times in the year that followed, and when he passed away, my mother began to join us on our many journeys with our master. From the time we began to follow him, we saw him do many great miracles, and he taught us much, especially concerning himself. Some of the miracles that stick out to me were things like changing water into wine at Cana, healing the royal official's son in Capernaum, healing the paralytic at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Most of the miracles he did were physical illustrations of some greater spiritual truth. As much as he cared for the physical health of those around him, and he did, he understood that physical health would only last so long. What really mattered was eternity. He said things to us like, I am the bread of life, or I am the living water. One day, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders about how Abraham looked forward to his coming. He told them that Abraham rejoiced in the fact that he would come to earth, and they said there was no way he could know Abraham because he was too young. I will never forget his response. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. I'm still trying to understand the full significance of this statement. But Jesus was telling these people and all of us who were gathered around him that he and the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush are one and the same. Another of the more powerful statements he made along these lines was when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He then raised Lazarus from the dead. When I saw that, I felt like anything was possible. It wasn't long after that that Passover was upon us. It was always an important feast to Jesus, but as we approached Jerusalem, I began to sense that this year the celebration would somehow be different. First of all, Jesus sent Peter and I ahead and told us to bring a colt that he could ride into the city. The strangest thing was that he told us exactly where to find it. He also told us exactly what to say if someone questioned us about why we were taking it. We found things exactly the way he said we would. This happened again when he asked us to prepare a room for the Passover. We found a man carrying a pitcher of water, which almost never happens in our culture, and followed him to an upper room where we made ready for the feast. We were always excited to celebrate the deliverance of our people from the hand of the Egyptians, but as I said earlier, this time it was different. As we were eating, Jesus got up from the meal and began to wash our feet one by one. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This was a man who had testified to being the chosen Messiah, 
and had given us many proofs of this, and yet our leader, the rabbi we had chosen to follow, was washing our feet. Peter protested and tried to add his own stipulations to the process, but Jesus stopped him with a word. We all rolled our eyes at Peter, but looking back, I realized that we all argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom of God, so I can't be too hard on him. Jesus told us that we should follow his example and wash one another's feet. I don't think it was as much about the feet washing itself as it was about having an attitude of selflessness for one another. Then things turned very serious and became very somber. Jesus began to talk again about leaving us. He told us that that very night, one of us would deny that we knew him. Another would betray him and that we would all forsake him. Of course, none of us wanted to believe him. We loved him. I loved him so much that that night I was leaning my head against his chest. None of us ever wanted to do anything to disappoint him. Peter even got up and said that he would die for Jesus. He gets a bad rep because he's so outspoken and brash, but I can assure you that we were all thinking similar thoughts. When Jesus responded to Peter by telling him that he would deny three times that he even knew him, we didn't know what to think. Jesus broke bread and gave it to us and told us that this was his body, broken for us. Then he took wine and told us all to drink from the cup. He said it represented the blood of the new covenant. I understand now so much more what that means. When it happened, I'll admit I was quite confused. Only as we were leaving the upper room did we realize that Judas had never returned from what we assumed was a settling of our accounts for the supplies used in the Passover meal, or some other provision Jesus had asked him to see to. We made our way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and as we did, Jesus prayed for us, and he also began to speak to us of the Holy Spirit that would come in his absence. Again, it was hard for us to comprehend that he was leaving. Looking back, I can see that he told us numerous times what his father's plan was. We just chose not to listen. He told us at least three times that he would be arrested, be tried, and be falsely convicted and put to death. He also said he would rise again. Sadly, these truths failed to register with us until after these events had played out. Of course, when we found out that he was going to the father, we all wanted to go with him. Jesus then told us that he was the way, the truth, and the life. When we reached the garden, he asked us to pray with him. He took Peter, James, and myself with him a little further into the garden. This wasn't surprising to any of us, as Jesus had often singled the three of us out to accompany him at specific times. Examples include his transfiguration, when we saw his glory in such a way that we can only now begin to talk about it, and the time that he raised a twelve-year-old girl from the dead. I still marvel that I was given these opportunities. I'm no one special. After all, as I talked about earlier, James and I made fools of ourselves when we asked Jesus if we could sit at the right hand and the left hand of his throne when he set up his kingdom. We even got our mother involved, thinking that would help our case. Fortunately, Jesus was loving and patient with us and simply stated that we did not understand what we were asking. As many life lessons as I had learned over the years, I am still a weak sinner. When Jesus needed me most, I fell asleep. I could try to make an excuse for you, but there was none, and I know it. Jesus woke us a few times and chastised us for not being able to stay awake with him in his agony. 
I don't think I realized how serious things were until Judas showed up with a band of men sent by the Pharisees. Even then I don't think I thought much about it, because in the past Jesus had always left the Pharisees dumbfounded and went on his way. I suppose I figured he would do the same here. Instead, I watched Jesus step forward and ask the leader of this band of soldiers who they were seeking. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He responded with the words, I am. They fell backwards. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought that would be the end of it. But instead, Jesus allowed them to bind his hands and lead him away. He was arrested. Just as Jesus predicted, we all ran. We were scared. I went and told Mary, his mother, what was going on, and as I sat there feeling helpless, I realized I needed to know what was going to happen. The high priest had enjoyed my father's fish, so we had a business relationship. This allowed me to access the courtyard. I watched in horror as Jesus was falsely accused and mistreated. I couldn't believe that this man who had done so much good and who had so much love in his heart was being subjected to this. He faced trial after trial that night, and every time I looked at him, I saw the sorrow in his eyes, but also love. I couldn't explain it. Why didn't he just defend himself, tell it like it was, and walk away? I'd seen him do it many times. Why not tonight? A couple times I heard him affirm that he was the Son of God, but for the most part he stood silent before his accusers. He told Pilate that he came into the world to be the king and to speak the truth. I'll never forget when Pilate asked him, What is truth? If only he had known. If only we had all known. Pilate repeatedly told the people that he found no fault with Jesus. His initial thought was to flog Jesus and let him go. He knew that Jesus had been brought to him because the religious leaders were jealous. He figured that given the tradition to release one prisoner at the Passover, if he brought out the worst prisoner he had in jail, a murderer named Barabbas, these people would see their foolishness and let Jesus go. After all, he had already been beaten badly and mistreated by the soldiers who were given responsibility for him. He was wrong. They chose Barabbas. I can still clearly see his bloody face and the crude crown of thorns that they jammed upon his head. I saw the sorrow etched on his face, but somehow I sensed that even though he was going through untold suffering, the anguish I saw in his face was more about his heart for those around him than for what he was experiencing himself in that moment. I saw the look of love. I saw the look of love mixed with sorrow that he shared with Peter. Only later would I find out about Peter's denial. And I even saw love when he looked at Barabbas. Even though his sneer remained, I got the sense that his reaction puzzled the hardened criminal standing next to my beloved rabbi. We watched as Barabbas was released. I watched as Pilate washed his hands and released Jesus to be crucified. I watched as the Roman soldiers grabbed Jesus and led him away to be crucified. As he was led away, I saw the blood from his wound on the back running down his cross, which they made him carry. I couldn't believe what was happening. Earlier that evening, I had persuaded Mary to stay in her home. 
I told her that I would bring her word of what had transpired. Now that I knew that Jesus was headed to the cross, I had to tell her. I tried to get her to stay where she was, but I knew that was a fruitless endeavor. She insisted I take her to the crucifixion site, and so we climbed Golgotha together. As we reached the summit of the hill, I wished with all my heart that I could shield Mary from this pain. I can't quite explain it, but I have always felt close to Jesus' mother, and in that moment I had never felt more powerless to help her. We watched as they nailed Jesus to the cross and hoisted it into place. I heard Jesus yelling, and I thought perhaps he was seeking relief, but as I leaned forward I realized that he was asking God to forgive those who had done this to him. He also asked God why he was forsaken. Later I would realize that it was because God had placed the sins of the world upon Jesus. I remember those words of John the Baptist in the early days, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I also heard him welcome one of the thieves he was crucified with into paradise. He said other things as well, but the thing that sticks in my mind most is when he addressed me directly. He looked at Mary and said, Behold thy son. Then he looked at me and said, Behold thy mother. I understood what he was saying, and from that time forward Mary came to live with me. Shortly after that Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, followed by, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Just like that, my beloved teacher was gone. I didn't know what to do or how to feel. Mary clung to me and cried, and all I could do was weep with her. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. Just a week ago I had seen him ride into the city, in triumph and welcomed with loud shouts of Hosanna by the same people who yelled crucify him only hours before. They had said that his blood could be on them and on their children. They had no idea how right they were. Jesus' blood was shed for all of us. Life went into slow motion after that. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for permission to take the body of Jesus. After confirming that he was in fact dead, permission was granted. I still remember how they confirmed his death. They broke the legs of the thieves on either side of him to speed their deaths, but when they came to Jesus they were pretty sure he was already dead. Rather than break his legs, they pierced his side with a spear. When blood and water came out, they knew he was gone. I remember watching Mary's endless supply of tears as she helped Joseph and Nicodemus prepare Jesus' body for burial. I wished again that I could do something to help, but all I could do was stand frozen in my place. Finally, I felt my knees give way, and I fell to the ground, asking God why over and over. After what seemed like forever, I felt Mary's hand slip into mine, and we made our way to the tomb where Jesus was buried. And we made our way to Mary's house, packed a few things, and proceeded to my home. The next few days were the longest of my life. All the events of the last three years returned in vivid color. I thought for hours about everything I had experienced in the past three years. All the plans and promises Jesus had told us about seemed fruitless now. How could we go on? I tried to console and comfort Mary, but how could I give her something that I myself was not feeling? 
No one was more distraught than Judas. When he realized that Jesus was going to die, that he couldn't take back his betrayal of innocent blood, he went out and hanged himself. If only he had realized the power of repentance. My fellow disciples and I spent much of our time in the days that followed Jesus' death. In that same upper room where Jesus had met us for the last supper we shared together. They say you often go back to the last thing you did before someone you loved died. I guess that's why the upper room meant so much to us. Early Sunday morning there was a knock on the upper room door. Peter and I rushed to open it. We knew that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some of the other women that traveled with us were going to anoint the body. We were at once concerned that they had been mistreated in some way on their journey. After all, burial spices aren't cheap. Instead, we found Mary Magdalene trying to catch her breath. At first, what she said sounded incoherent. We couldn't understand, so we told her to slow down. She told us that Jesus' body was gone, so we ran to investigate. As we approached, we saw that the stone was rolled away from the entrance. This was no small thing because the stone was huge. I had seen six men roll it into place three days earlier. We looked into the tomb, and he was not there. As if to make doubly sure, Peter entered the tomb and stood near the grave clothes, trying to make sense of it all. After Peter walked out, I went in myself, and I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. I remembered what Jesus said about rising from the dead. Mary Magdalene followed us back to the grave. We all processed things differently, and she said that she wanted to be alone. I later found out that while she was weeping, Jesus himself asked her why she was crying. For some reason she thought he was the gardener, and she asked him where she could find the body of the Lord. After she said that, he simply said, Mary, and she knew it was him. Mary raced back to tell us what happened. We had our doubts, but later that evening Jesus did appear to us. He was alive. Take all the wonderful things that ever happened to you in your life and roll them into one, and you'll get at least a little bit of what we were feeling in that moment. Over the next 40 days, Jesus continued to teach us and prepare us for his departure. One of the most significant events was that he once again provided a miraculous catch of fish for us and made a delicious breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a wonderful time of fellowship. Jesus pulled Peter aside and gave him the opportunity to affirm his love for him three times, the same number of times he had denied him before his death. Before Jesus left us, he told us to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. He also told us that it wasn't important for us to know when he was returning, but to simply do the work which he called us to do. That was a hard thing to accept. After all, it is in our human tendency to want to be in control. We want to know what to expect in life, but God says to each of us two simple words, Trust me. I can still remember watching Jesus as he ascended into heaven, craning my neck so that I could watch him for as long as possible, wishing with all my heart that he wasn't leaving. I remember the men who appeared to us and told us that the same Jesus we had watched go into heaven will come again in the same way. They told us to stop gazing into heaven. It was a subtle way for God to remind us that he had work to do. God did send us the Holy Spirit just as he promised, and I spend as much time as possible telling people with his help that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that if you believe this, you can have life through his name.
my prayer for you is that you experience this for yourself. After all, he came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. You can have that life because he lives. And there you have it. The story of the events of Good Friday and the days that followed through the perspective of the Apostle John. I want to thank my friend um, <clears throat> John Wilson for bringing that to life for us. And I hope that as you've listened to this narrative that you have really thought about the events that occurred and that you have uh, thought about how they've affected your life. I, I hope and trust You've already made a decision to follow Jesus, but if you have not, there's no greater time to do it than today on Good Friday, because that will give it a whole new meaning that you had, did not at first experience. Even the disciples, you know, we just we just heard how there was so much that Jesus told them that they didn't understand, but as they submitted to what Jesus was doing, and because of Jesus' patience with them, they were able to understand the truth of the gospel. And he has the same patience and the same calling for you and I as he did for the disciples. He tells us to tell others about himself. And he gives us the Holy Spirit which allows us to do that. So I would encourage you to trust the Christ of Easter. Because that's where the power is really going to come into your life. I often say on our Christmas shows that the, that the manger was the start of the path to the cross. And the cross is what we commemorate today. I don't want to say celebrate because it was an ugly thing. But it had to be ugly because that's what our sin was. But praise God, the resurrection proves that we don't, don't have to live with our sin anymore. Um, Adam, do you have any final thoughts before we say goodbye? All I can say to all of that, honestly, is amen. All right. Well, um, our contact information is going to roll still at the end of the show. If you have any feedback for us or if you just want to get more information about speaking for him as a ministry, we would very much appreciate hearing from you. But beside that, have a wonderful rest of your Good Friday. Have a great Resurrection Day on Sunday. And no we exist here at Speaking for Him because He is risen. He is risen indeed. Have a great weekend and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him, alongside his co-host and executive producer, Adam McNutt. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.